Uh, my name is Andrew. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here, one of the pastors here at Sanctuary Church. It's really, really great to have you. Uh, I'm so excited to be able to welcome up um, a guest teacher today. I want to welcome up AJ Sherrill. AJ uh, is from Trinity Grace Church in New York City. You may or may not have heard me reference uh, their community. They have been, um, I don't know if it's fair enough to say this completely, but it's felt like kindred spirits um, in terms of how they're practicing church in a city like New York. Um, AJ has earned his uh, MA um, uh, from Columbia and, Re and uh, Reformed Theological Seminary and is a doctoral candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, and he has just written this incredible book uh, called Quiet. He was here yesterday leading us through a workshop about hearing God's noise amidst the noise, and it was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. So I want to encourage you, uh, they're just $5 in the back to pick up a copy of the book. And uh, if, you, uh, if, if that's something for you that you know you've been really wrestling with of what does it mean and how do I do a better job listening to God's voice, I want to encourage you to do that. But all that said, we please give a very warm welcome to AJ Sherrill. It's great to be here. I'm uh, regretfully going to have to leave uh, pretty soon after, given I have an early 12 o'clock train. Um, so that means the message will be shorter than probably you're expecting. So that's good news for you. Uh, no, it's, re it's really great to be here. I have uh, first time in Providence, and uh, the city's really enchanting. Maybe it's because there's no garbage on the streets like there is in mine. Uh, but I just have had such a great weekend. I loved being with so many of you yesterday who, uh, who came out for the workshop, and uh, it's just really, really great to be uh, amongst family that I feel like there is so much continuity between uh, our community in New York. I, I, my wife and I pastor in a neighborhood called Chelsea, which for many of you that um, are fans of art, sort of the art center of New York. And so, uh, so it's really great to be here. Um, I want to talk this morning um, about the way of the cross. I know it's a conversation you've been in in the epistle of Philippians, and I want to, um, to talk out of Ephesians, if I may, for this, for this morning. And I want to talk about the way of the cross in terms of the way of the cross is the way of transformation. It is the way of transformation, which is, which is, which is odd, paradoxical at best. It's, 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 um, it's not, it doesn't make sense. I appreciate the heckler. Um, it doesn't make sense whatsoever to talk about the way of transformation and the way of, of sort of upward movement in life through a downward trajectory. And yet riddled all throughout, particularly the life of Jesus, but all throughout scripture is this sort of inverted kingdom that it seems like the way in which we progress in becoming more and more human has to do with releasing who we are rather than clutching and clinging into who we are. I mean, you think about things like, let's just take Palm Sunday. I don't know if you know this about the palms, but the palms were the signs of the zealots, one of the, the sects of the time that wanted wanted through violence to take the kingdom by force. And so when Jesus comes, they say, finally, our king has come to dethrone the Romans and give us back our land, our power, the theocracy that God wanted for us. And Jesus comes in on a little donkey and says, if you only knew what made for peace. In other words, the kingdom and the transformation of this creation into the wholeness of how God longs for it to be isn't gonna come through your force isn't gonna come through me jamming it down your throats, but wooing you into love and inviting you into service. Really, really paradoxical. Or even look about this um, mural behind me, very iconic. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but 
the side where Jesus was pierced and the life flowed out of the Son of God is what in his death gives creation life. I mean, there's nothing, nothing rational about that, nothing reasonable about that. That's actually a, quite a mystical truth. And yet, I don't know if you ever realized this, but you do know that that's where our two sacraments come from, the side of Jesus. We have the blood representing the meal that we'll take today, and we have the water representing the baptism that I know you celebrated last week. You have the very sacraments through the death of Jesus pouring out from his side which end up giving us life. So the way of the cross, we want to declare as we head into Holy Week, is the way of transformation. Jesus made it quite clear for us that if you do not deny yourself and pick up your cross, you cannot be his disciple. There is no caveat, there's no footnote, there's no asterisk to that. You cannot be his disciple if you yourself are not carrying a mode of death around in your body all the time, in your framework of how you're living your life. It's really, really strange. And it's no wonder that a society like ours would say, that, what, what does that even mean? Which is why a church has such a great opportunity to live out the beauty of service and joy and love in the midst of a world that it just seems irrational to follow Jesus in the first place because it demands so much of us. So let's be clear from the onset. The cross that Jesus carried for us, it paid the weight of our sin in full. And at the same time, the cross that we are called to carry permits us to grow into the identity that God has given us through grace. So we have a cross that's known theologically, don't get caught up with this word, but for our justification, that we are made right before God, not by anything we've done or can earn, but by the cross that Jesus took for us that we could not take for ourselves. We have the fullness of freedom given by the paid debt that went into his body as he welcomed the sin of the world on the cross. And at the same time, what we're invited into is a cross that we carry to grow into that identity that God says is yours by grace. It's forged through self-denial and through service and through love. It's a cross of ongoing transformation as we reject our obsession of self-sufficiency and seek to love our neighbor. So Jesus' teachings, they demand transformation if we're going to take them seriously. I don't know how seriously you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, but it's quite difficult. I mean, good luck with living that out in fullness for a day. So we know that the, the sort of standard in which Jesus has called us to be human, we simply cannot pull off in the flesh. That we need empowerment, we need indwelling, we need God, God's self, to come and show us how to do this and empower us to live this kind of life. And so I would just say this, which we talk a lot about in Trinity Grace Church in Chelsea. I just want to reject and rebuke the sort of small reasons we might be a part of church. And if you've been a part of church for like a number of years, this is especially for people like you and me. It is too small a thing to be a part of a church only to expect some simple tips to make life easier or a touch more manageable. It's just too small a thing. It's too small a thing to only expect from the church some sort of like reasonable faith that makes sense that you can put God in your pocket and apply God in five simple ways on Monday. Although we need application, it's too small a vision. What would a community like be like if we came with an expectation that not only was God with us, but God was for us and God was in us? And that when we come together as a church, 
there is something powerful and transformative that is available for us as we worship and as we give ourselves to the faith. So let's begin. Ephesians 8. This is where we'll be this morning. And um, it reads this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. It begins by saying, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. I'll read this whole thing. Excuse me. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of life is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfaithful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, throughout the generations, you have used your text to inspire the church to be awakened to life. And so we draw on that tradition this morning. We ask that you would call us to more than, um, than managing spirituality. That you would call us to a, a reckless and abandoned surrender that would allow you and give you permission to come and transform every part of who we are. We know that's a lifelong journey, and so we give ourselves in full to the process and long to be made more in conformity to your image, Jesus, this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. So when we look at this first part of the text, I just want to walk through this text, talk a little bit about transformation, and then we'll come to the table. It begins, for one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And for the Christian, this is sort of our confession. that The Christian is not simply one who has made a, like a simple transition, who has sort of slid into sort of a new belief system. What we're talking about, what Paul is talking about, is to be in Christ is actually a reinvention. A transformation has occurred. That you weren't sort of in darkness and, and now you're like moving toward the light. That Your life was darkness, is what Paul is saying. And now your life is light, that a dynamic shift has taken place. And whether you feel it or not, what Paul is saying is the way God sees you is as a completely new creation. I get the question a lot, how's, you know, my, my daughter's nine months old, and I get the question quite a bit like, hey, how's being a dad? And, you know, I've had a really hard time answering that because if, if you're a dad or you're a mom, you realize that there's like, a whole inventory of data to talk about how being a dad is in so many different nooks and crannies. And, and the way I've just sort of like said it in like a Cliff Notes version is when say, hey, how's being a dad? I say, well, it, it's actually like a new way to be human. You don't like slide into parenthood and like simply transition your life. You actually reinvent it. Everything gets reinvented around this child. And it sounds like a death, but it's actually an amazing life that comes with reinventing and transitioning, not just transitioning, transforming your life. That Paul similarly is revealing that those in Christ haven't added like this little accessory called belief or faith or Christianity. But he's saying that we move into a radically new identity. And God sees us as new creation. So when we come to this text and when we read it, we must understand, I think, first of all, that Paul is not speaking about moralism. 
that Christianity is about sort of being better and getting better at things and having some sort of moral achievement that you move into. Moralism is this idea that somehow your behavior will produce your transformation. If you can just get it right enough, if you can just do the right things enough, over time you will finally become the person that God had in mind and then you will be new creation. What the text is saying, what Paul is getting at, is that transformation, unlike moralism, transformation will actually change your behavior. There's a whole new operating system, an inverted way. It's not about being better so you can finally be good and God will accept you. It's about receiving a new identity and growing into the transformation that God says is already true about your life. Growing into your divine identity that we have through the indwelling of the Spirit. My dissertation advisor is a man named Dr. Richard Peace and he spent his academic career attempting to understand how Christians have been formed spiritually throughout history. And he talks about the paradox of transformation. And he says two things about it. The first thing he says is this, that transformation is God's full responsibility. Transformation is God's full responsibility, that we cannot impart life to ourselves or light to ourselves, that we actually have to have an external source illumine us, awaken us us bring us not out of like sort of a a sleep into life but out of a dead tomb into resurrection i love what richard Rohr says he says it has been said many times that after transformation you seldom have the feeling that you have found anything it feels much more like someone found you and you find yourself having been grabbed being held and being someone's beloved at first you do not even know what is going on all you know is that it is a most wondrous undergoing, but an undergoing nonetheless. That scripture seems to tell us that over and over we are being transformed. Romans 12 is another great way to see that about the minds. Being renewed, being transformed. In other words, there's a passivity to it. That there's a surrender that we're called to first in the faith. A consent, if you will. A permission for God to invade our hearts. And yet, at the same time where transformation is God's full responsibility, the paradox is this that transformation is our full responsibility. Holding those tensions at the same time, that we must choose to permit the light to enter and to cooperate with it. That's a choice that we must make. And we cannot transform ourselves, but we do have to choose whether or not we put ourselves in positions and contexts and environments where transformation can take place. I mean, that's hopefully why you're here this morning. Not for some simple tips, but for a renewed heart, a renewed mind that reminds you who God says you are already and to grow into that. The Christian claim our lives that have been transformed from one status, from darkness to light, from one state of existence to another. And it's a testimony of God's great grace. It's like walking out of a matinee on a summer afternoon where you don't even realize how you had become accustomed to life in one context and you come out and your eye is automatically exposed to such a new, different way. And you quickly want to shut it but God continues to long, us to long for us to open our eye more and more that the light may come in and we may be 
transformed. And the second thing it says is this. It says, not only beyond verse 8, for at one time you were darkness and now you are light, Paul says, to walk then. To walk as children of light. Once again, we see over and over in scripture, if you go to verse 15 of this passage we won't look at, Paul then once again talks about walking. If you go to the first part of Ephesians 5, Paul talks about walking. And this is a a really interesting rebuke. I think it's a rebuke specifically for for Christians in the West. I mean, this this one resonates really loudly in my own soul and, and really stirs me and convicts me in so many ways. Paul talks about faith in terms of walking. I don't know if you have made that movement toward Jesus by confessing Christ as Lord. Specifically, if you did that in your early childhood, um, it's hard to sort of understand what we mean by faith and belief because faith and belief over time becomes this sort of uh, understanding that faith is sort of the ideas that you have in your head about God. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means to, to believe these things. One, two, three. And, and absolutely, there's a huge part of that, that there are things, there are things that we inherently believe that we call theology, that we serve as foundations of moving into walking this life. But Paul talks about faith in terms of walking. And the Greek word for faith is this word pistis, which means, and I think it's better suited for our time than talking about faith, it also means trust. It's kind of a better way of talking about that. In other words, faith isn't just what you think about God in your head. It's how you're actually living in covenantal trust that God is with you, for you, and is in you, and is moving you through this life. And the call is not to believe the seduction that comes from the enemy that tells you you're alone, that tells you to live in shame, that tells you you're stuck, that tells you you'll never move on. The call of faith is to trust what God says about you is true. The faith is not about doctrinal ideas, although that's a part of it, as much as it is about obedient walking. Peripateo is this word in the Greek. To walk, to move, to have our being in God. To walk as children of light. I simply think that far too many of us Christians follow Jesus in our heads while omitting him from our lives. And this is, this is an extremely uncompelling spirituality. Paul is driving that for those in Christ, the way of Jesus eventually shows up in our lives and we walk them out. And we bear witness to the fact that we're being transformed. Verse nine, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. I love, I love that he says the fruit of light, that this light has come in, this external source, and there's fruit as a result of that, that being in Christ, being in Christ and who is the light of the world, Jesus is the light of the world is our declaration as followers of Jesus. He eventually bears fruit in our life visibly and tangibly. You know, one of the biggest turning points in my life came in my early 20s when I began to see that spirituality wasn't this like, cliche ethereal experience only you know this ah now I'm a very spiritual person like this moment of cathartic experience on the cliff overlooking a sea whereas I I mean that's a part of that and I long for those moments and I I I have made Ebenezer's about those moments of remembering and making sure that that I hang on to those moments where I felt God so so purely through my being and and but but that spirituality is not this only disembodied cathartic moment but that spirituality and this was a really big shift for me was bound up in in things as mundane as choices that spirituality is choices 
And this is what Paul is getting at. That just as the exposure to sunlight produces the fruit of the vine, so exposure to the light of Christ produces fruit in you. And it happens through choices. That spirituality is not just this thing in our heads or this cathartic experience, but it's as earthy as taking things like the Eucharist. Because if, if God can transform things as simple and mundane as bread and water, imagine what God can do through you. And we know that if God can transform the little things, the little substances of this world, how much more those who God has said, you're in my image. I've made you uniquely in creation. I think God has a lot of faith in us. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, I love this passage because what I love about this passage is I, I believe, and I think this will resonate well in this community, um, I think it's an invitation into creativity. When Paul tells us to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, you know, we have this task of discernment, which I think is, is shorthand for saying we have this task of relationship. We have this task of stewarding this mystery, not this sort of law code that we can check the boxes and say, yeah, I think I've done everything right, but this task of moving freely in a relationship of spiritual discernment, not following some religious script, but a relational God. That the task that we have as followers of Jesus is to discern what God wants to do in every single moment when we walk in every single room, Monday through Friday, what that looks like at work, what that looks like at home, what that looks like in every single nook and cranny of who we are and what we are about. When you think about the deep relationships in your life, just locate one of them, someone that has a deep connection with you. When you think about the deep relationships in your life, they are always layered with creativity, always. It's what makes them deep, is the, is, is the reality that creativity is at play. The deep relationships are those which have sought to discover what is pleasing to the other and then moving into blessing them with that. You see this with good friends, you see this with spouses, you see this in your family relationships, at least healthy family relationships. And I'll, I'll give you an example here. Giving each other gifts is a great example of this. It means so much to you. When someone who knows you deeply gives you something that no one else on earth would know you would even care about, and it satisfies something deep in your heart that has a, a specific connection to who you are, to what you're longing for. And, you know, I'll give you a little tip about a gift for your pastor in case you're wondering. You will find a really warm spot in the heart of Andrew if you get him anything made of reclaimed wood, like restoration hardware, that's a, good, that's a good thing, or something with an Edison bulb, something along those lines. That's just a really soft landing into his heart. You know, so if you want to tickle his fancy, I'll just, you know, I'll let you discern what the product might be, but that's just a little tip there. My, um, my late grandmother, Mimi, anyone have a Mimi out there? Anyone a Mimi out there? A couple Mimis, yeah. My late grandmother, Mimi, uh, she couldn't have been taller than four foot five. Uh, it was so cute. And she lived outside Detroit, which is not as cute. Um, and I remember growing up, and uh, we, would, we would all pack in. We lived in Nashville, and we would all pack into our white Nissan Stanza, the five of us with our dog, and we would make the ascent up to Detroit for Christmas. And, you know, God bless grandparents. They are the best, right? They have no idea what to buy us for Christmas. They don't have a clue. 
And, uh, you know, especially when we're in middle school. When we're in middle school, they don't, they don't know what to buy us. And I, I don't know if you remember that moment, but we're such entitled jerks at that age anyway that it's, it's impossible to buy us the right gifts, gifts anyway. But it was 1993, and... Uh, and these were the flourishing days of, like, the skate and surf retailer, Pacific Sunwear. Anyone? Anyone? Pack Sun? A couple of you? Um, Quicksilver, Billabong? My personal favorite, Counterculture. Anyone? Counterculture? Never had, like, the Mo that some of the other ones had, but that's probably we've never heard of it. Um, now, I knew Mimi uh, didn't know that Pacific Sunwear existed, let alone imagining her four-foot-five frame walking into that store. Um, so on Christmas Eve in the mirror, I would sort of rehearse opening her gift because I wanted to seem grateful. And yet I knew in my, in, in the heart of hearts, I knew that when I unwrapped the wrapping and got to the box, it would read this. <laughs> right? Inevitably, that's what it would read every single year. Right, and, and like Jesus of Nazareth, can anything good from, come from coals? You know, um, I, I, uh, no kid in middle school wanted to be caught with Coles brand. And uh, the point is this: Is there a point? I think there's a point to this. The point is, don't shop at Coles. No, the, the point is, Mimi, notwithstanding, deep relationships long to deserve, to discern what pleases the other, and it moves into making that. A blessing for the other. And it's the same with God. That God is blessed when we live our lives and discern what is good and right and true. And we begin to live according to those things. Because you have the task of discerning what is good and right and true through the gift of the Spirit in you for your workplace, for your neighbors, for the students on your campus, etc., etc. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. When anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. In other words, Paul's saying expose the darkness, that your personal transformation, that your personal metamorphosis as a human into fuller Christ-likeness over the course of your life, it must lead to a longing to see society transformed. And as one of my favorite heroes says, spirituality is always personal, but it's never private. It's never you and Jesus walking around the world together, and that's it. It's designed to leak. And as the blood and the water flowed from the side of Jesus to leak life into the rest of the world, so your life is designed to leak into the hearts and minds of the people around you through good news. I love how Andrew set up Easter through good news of liberation and joy, not out of obligation, but because of a compassion to see others set free from the same maladies and stuck life that you once had before Christ, that idea of self-condemnation that we walked in all the time with, or comparison, or control, or shame, or apathy, self-sufficiency, vanity, all of these things characterized living in darkness. And we're summoned to new life to open our eyes out of the matinee and to begin to long for more of the wholeness that God longs for us in transformation. And therefore it says, and I love this ancient hymn, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Like the Philippians hymn, this is one of the oldest hymns that we have. 
And I, I, when I read this, I can't help but think of Lazarus coming out of an empty tomb to awake a sleeper, not as someone who was just taking a nap, but who was in a, a coma spiritually and was summoned to new life, summoned to brainwaves that would function and move. Early theologians talked about this in terms of baptism imagery. Out of the water. I love the image of just going into the depths of the water, dying with Christ and being risen to new life. And so, where do we go from this today? Where do we go from here? What are we supposed to say about this in terms of our lives? I think there's four ongoing transformations that I want to talk about really briefly and we'll close. That we are constantly beckoned to respond to constantly wooed into experience more of, constantly called to awaken into from our sleep, from our apathy, from our cynicism, from all of the things that kind of characterize our generation. And the first is this. We're called to transformation from death to life. Death to life. You know, have you given God, and this is the question I would ask for this to begin, have you given God permission to transform your life? Have you given God permission to do that? I think God calls us not to coercion where God jams the gospel down our throats and makes us believe, but woos us into love and invites us into encounter. Have you given God permission to transform your life? You do this by confessing Christ as Lord, specifically the Lord of your life and inviting the spirit to indwell. And listen, this is what transforms you. The spirit indwelling, not your striving to sort of balance the scales of good and bad, hoping good tips and outweighs the bad at the end of your life, and then you will experience the fullness of what eternity means, but surrendering to the Holy Spirit who makes you holy through indwelling. And so if I could talk about briefly the way of the cross when it comes to death to life. So for some of you that have just not made the decision, and yet you just continue to sort of teeter back and forth as to whether this is your story. I would ask this. This is how the way of the cross comes to bear. Are you willing to carry the possible weight of ridicule? Are you willing to carry the possible weight of ridicule to bear the name of Jesus in your life, to move from death to life? Because that's pretty crushing in our time. And that's a reason to disbelieve because we just know that Christianity in so many environments in our time is just seen as people that don't think and people that don't have good response, and just people that blindly believe stuff. And so over time, we, just, we sort of have a branding problem. And are you willing to carry the weight of ridicule? You know, for many, you know, this is simply not a cross that you're willing to bear. But I would just remind you gently, with no exegesis behind it, but just allowing the scriptures to come to bear, Matthew 10, 32, that says, everyone who acknowledges me before men and women I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men and women, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Simple text, simple question. Have you invited God into your life, from death to life? Second thing is this, from shame to acceptance. From shame to acceptance. We talk about this a lot at Trinity Grace Church in Chelsea. And the question I get sometimes is this, but wait, AJ, I mean, shame to acceptance. Shouldn't, shouldn't a follower of Jesus feel shame about sin? And this is one that lands probably most heavily in the church today. Should, shouldn't we feel heavy about sin and bad about it? And the answer to that is this. Followers of Jesus should feel remorse and conviction, which leads to repentance. And that's very different than shame. 
Shame is this. Shame often inappropriately moves us beyond a rebuke of something that we've said or done. And it moves us into a condemnation of who we are. What shame does is it shrinks your identity down to a few isolated experiences and says that's who you are and that's all you are and you have to live into that. That's very different, extremely different than conviction. Shame leads us to despair. There's no way out. There's bondage. I guess I'm just going to have to carry this the rest of my life, this wound, and it's never going to get better. And it, it is what it is. And I'm stuck in this addiction. I'm stuck in this habit. I'm stuck in this wound, whatever it might be. But conviction is different. Conviction leads to repentance, to forgiveness, to restoration, to renewal instantly. That God isn't interested in your penalty box that you want to create. That when you sit there long enough, then you can tell God, you're ready to come out because now I feel better. And I've penalized myself long enough. That's, that's shame. God's very interested in repentance. Saying, whatever you've done, just turn. I will turn and confess and repent. I'm here with open arms. Like the prodigal son. That every single week, I think a vast majority of every congregation is caught up in a deep shame that no one knows about. And let me just say some good news over you who follow Jesus but feel shame. The cross of Jesus is bigger than your problem. It's bigger than your problem. I love Bill Johnson said, a pastor out in Redding, California. Sometimes our breakthrough begins when we refuse to be impressed by the size of our problem. The third transformation that I would call us to this morning is from self to others. Not just from death to life or from shame to acceptance, but from self to others. What does that look like, particularly in this church? Are you willing to move beyond networking and into relationships with the people that you worship with here at Sanctuary? Is that the disposition of your heart? You know, some of you have been attending here for months. And I would just suggest, as a guest speaker, really politely, because Andrew would probably never say this. It's time for you to move into committed relationships here. It's time for you to think about what it means to give generously to this community. It's time for you to start using your spiritual gifts to bless the church here. What would that look like for you? The way of the cross when it comes to self to others is to simply carry the weight of humility toward each other. I love what Paul says in Romans 12, 10. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in honor. What does a community look like that's trying to outdo each other in honor? That's amazing. It's a transformative practice, moving from self to others. And the last thing I would say, and in conclusion... Are you moving toward cons from consumer to mission? From consuming in this life to having a mission for this world, for loving the city. And I just want to share a brief story. There's a member of our community that sent an interesting email the other day to a short list of us as friends of our church. She says this, I've been working at a fashion design company with a woman for the past 10 months. She's been freelancing, hoping to get a full-time job. Yesterday, she told me that she had two weeks left and she's been let go. Before this, she was employed for three, unemployed for three months. In this time, she fell $5,000 behind on rent. Yeah, welcome to New York. And has been receiving eviction notices. Last night, she got word that she has 10 days to pay the balance or she'll be evicted. Her family is not willing to help and she does not have a community to support her. She does not follow Jesus. And the burden of facing this situation alone is more than I can imagine. She's a teenage daughter who she supports. And I know this adds to her anxieties and worries. If you feel moved toward giving toward her need, please let me know. I'm reaching out to you for and a few family friends from the church. 
I think that showing radical generosity in the name of Jesus will be a powerful display of God's heart to order in this time. And if nothing else, please join me in praying for she and her daughter. May God's mercy be released over her life through this. So that was March 18th. March 21, I got another email. She sent out an update. What an amazing and humbling week this has been. This was four days later, by the way. I've been absolutely floored by your generosity and love for someone you've never met. So thankful to share the story with you today. I wrote a letter to her this morning and put a check in for the full amount. In the note, I spoke of grace being a free gift, that she is indebted to no one, and that all that and that all who gave did so out of the belief that they've received the same but infinitely greater gift from the grace of God. When she came in and read the letter, she called me to her office and embraced me weeping. She said she'd never received unconditional help before, but that it was the most profound thing she ever experienced. Thank God, thank God, she kept saying. I know there's more to her story and that this is only the beginning of what's being revived. Later that day, another coworker came to me in tears and hugged me. The woman had told her what happened. And she said, not only have you changed her life, but you revived my faith as well. Just last night, she told her husband that she felt faith in, her faith in Jesus was dead. She said that in all of her life, she had never seen such a thing. And it reminded her of the truth of the grace and goodness of God. On a practical note, the woman is now able to stay in her apartment. She has job interviews next week. I continue to be amazed at your grace, Lord. I'm honored to do life with each of you. I mean, we listen to stories like that. You think, man, it's amazing. It's amazing. We're all attracted to stories like that because of the ending. You know, and we all think like, man, I wish I had stories like that in my life. That's wonderful. I'm so happy for that woman who stepped out and took a risk, stepped out and actually tried to raise funds on her own. It's really, really great. And the response the women have, how beautiful. But you, you only get to the profound ending of these kinds of stories with really simple, ordinary beginnings. And I just want you to think about consumer to mission for your life. For 10 months, my friend simply showed up to work at her ordinary job, working with an ordinary team, and at the right time, it was appropriate for her to move out in faith and display the grace of God in this radical way. And this is what it means to move from consumer to mission. Simple, mundane moments create bridges of trust that change the world. The way of the cross for us is the way of faithful presence where we are. And like the cross that Jesus carried, it is not sexy, but it transforms everything. Such a paradox. It's not spectacular, but it's transformative. The way of transformation for us this morning, I would submit is an ongoing surrender to who God says you already are in Christ. It's living into your God-given identity. And so as we close, I'm gonna put these four imperatives on the screen and I would just ask as we move into some stillness and take the Eucharist, which of these four directions do you sense God calling you into further transformation today? And as you come to the Eucharist this morning, I would invite you, as Andrew invites you in a moment, to come with the expectation that transformation will take place through the power of the Spirit.